Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Luke's English Podcast is sponsored by italki, a very, very convenient and simple way to find one-to-one teachers for lessons and conversations online. The way it works is that first you choose your teacher. You can watch the teacher's video introduction, read reviews of their lessons from previous students. And when you found the teacher that suits you, you can just simply choose a date and time that's convenient for you and then take your lesson on Skype or other video chat software. It's very professional very, very easy to use, and millions, literally millions of people around the world are using italki to learn languages. And when you buy some talking time, italki will send you a voucher for a free lesson because you listen to this podcast. To get the offer, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everyone, and welcome all of you to this new episode. You're listening to number 638, and this is the second part in this series I've decided to call Quintessentially British Things That You Might Not Know About in which I talk to members of my family about things that they think are significant or typical examples of Britishness in their eyes. I'm assuming that you've heard the previous episode in which James told us about five interesting English things. Now it's my dad's turn and we decided to go for just three things this time instead of five to make sure the episode didn't go on too long. So you're going to hear my dad describing certain aspects of Britain that include things like ancient history, the geographical and geological nature of these islands, and how the Industrial Revolution changed the country. There's plenty of very descriptive language from my dad, plus quite a lot to learn in terms of history and geography. You'll notice that it sounds a bit like the Rick Thompson report at the beginning, as we discuss what it really means to be British, as opposed to English, Scottish, Irish or Welsh. And there's talk of the Scottish independence movement, but my dad assures me that his three things can definitely be considered British rather than just English. We recorded this together in the living room at my parents' place on New Year's Eve. And in fact, we were still recording at the stroke of midnight. So you can hear dad and me wishing each other a happy new year, enjoying some fireworks on TV and seeing in the beginning of the new decade together. I think you know the concept of the episode now, so I'll just let you enjoy listening to my dad talking about some British things that he likes in particular. Hi, Dad. Hello, Luke. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Very good. Nice to talk to you again. Nice to be talked to again. Yes. So, we're talking about... Well, I still haven't really decided what the title of these episodes is going to be yet. I was talking to James about 
this and I thought that I would probably call it something like quintessentially British things or quintessentially English things that you might not know about. Okay, so are the things that you've chosen, are they British or are they English? Oh, they're, they're British. And um, I got the idea that you wanted me to talk about things I, I like about Britain. Okay, that's yes. good. The main thing is that we talk about British things that are sort of not the usual cliches. Not cliches. Yeah. Mm. Okay. The usual cliches being, you know, fish and chips, Mr. Bean, you know, mm. that kind of thing. Okay, so they're all British things, are they? Yes, they are British things. Uh, I mean, I, I, th- I think that um, when I think, why do I like Britain? And and ev- nearly everybody likes the place they come from. But they are you, they're definitely British. So at least one of these things is either Welsh or Scottish oh, yeah, or so, from yes, Northern I Ireland. I think you'll find that. Okay, yes. okay. It's just I thought I'd make that distinction. Just, <laughs> okay, just because I think a lot of the time. Uh, the English say British, and they they just want they like they prefer the word British because it feels more inclusive. Whereas people in Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland, depending on how they feel about the whole arrangement, might prefer the word Scottish. Well, this or- is all about identity now, which is brought into question now by um, you know Brexit, which has divided the country, and so obviously there's a lot of uh, discussion writing about identity. You know, are the Scots really British. Uh, do the English want to be British or do they want to be English? The Americans always call us English anyway, wherever we come from. Well, yeah, that's because it's um, confusing. But the Americans, they sort of often yeah. confuse English and British. But, know. you know, what, what, you know, so we now have Scotland wanting, uh, or at least the, the ruling party in Scotland, the Scottish National Party, wanting to be um, independent and calling for another referendum. They've had one already, which they which didn't, didn't pass. Mm-hmm. Um, because they voted significantly to stay in the EU. They don't want to leave the EU. They feel as though they're being dragged out of the EU by London. And, um, you know, th- the same in similar way to, is Northern Ireland. They voted to remain in the EU as well. Mm. And uh, so it's becoming very divisive. And so the identity of whether we're British, whether we're Scottish, Welsh, Irish, English, or all of them, uh, is being questioned. No, I, 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 don't worry. Um, I'm going to talk about Britain. Okay. All right, then. And I think that's enough Brexit. This yes, is, it certainly is. This isn't the Rick Thompson report. No, it's not. You're being brought in as a, just a normal guest. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'll try and be normal. <laughs> Do your best. I know it's difficult. Um, so... Shall we start with your first British? How many yeah. things have you chosen? He asked me to do three three things, yeah. general subjects, really. I, I, I've uh, with James, it was five, and I, actually, I thought that that would be the right number, but I felt like it was um, a few too many. So, three. oh, you don't want to go on too long. Everyone out there will fall asleep. Well, we've been through this many times. Mm. Some of them probably do fall asleep. Some of them listen while driving, which is a bit of a worry. Anyway, it's three things, three things that I quite like about Britain. And Mm -hmm. um, what I was saying earlier is that I imagine around the world, everybody has an affection for the country they were born in. Yeah. It's just kind of instinctive. We're tribal and um, it can get a bit ridiculous that, you know, uh, patriotism and nationalism can go completely ridiculous and and not rational. Mm. It is the greatest country in the world. There's people who haven't been to very many countries in the world. Yeah. uh, So... um, uh, no, I'm not going to do that, but uh, I do have an affection for for uh, Britain, the land of my birth, and it's basically related to cult. No, what am I going to say? It, it related to history and geography mm-hmm. more than 
pop culture and the famous, you know, um, trendy pop art music thing that we're famous for um uh, or comedy or some of the things that are in the popular culture domain now i think i'm more interested in something that goes back in time a bit more than that okay so history and geography Mm. and maybe can i say geology yes okay so let's talk about your first thing what's the first thing that you've chosen to talk about i thought the first thing would be about ancient britain and the monuments we we have all over these islands because we're a, a group of islands, mm-hmm. and um, I'm 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 rather interested in these things. Um, people kind- will know Stonehenge; um, it's a famous World Heritage site, but it's not the only one. And and there's um, there's a lot of interesting um, remains from prehistoric times, and uh, they're mysterious. Uh, people have lots of theories about them, but what they do demonstrate is that there were very sophisticated societies here on these islands. Um, what Stonehenge? It was three thousand BC. Let, let's call it five thousand years ago. Yeah, um, five thousand. Five thousand years ago, yeah. which we don't know anything about. I mean, the, there are no written records. There's occasional scratchings on stone, runes, old lettering. Why do we not know about those times? In, well, uh, in, 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 in the UK, at least. Well, there, were, there was no, nothing written. There were no books. There right. were, you know, there's, there's nothing that's remained of it. We can only yeah. speculate from the things that have survived, some ancient jewels, you know, some marks, uh, some stones. And the, um, the Stonehenge period... Um, which I think is Neolithic. And it must have been a really sophisticated chain of societies. Why? Um, Well, they have um, amazing kind of um, rituals. Obviously, there were were a lot of rituals. So there must have been some kind of deeply felt religion. And um, the amount of effort they put into making these monuments, monuments to the gods or to the sun and to the moon, uh, which I think is really quite intelligent because mm-hmm. without the sun, well, you were all dead. <laughs> and uh, I think it was really powerful that, um, you know, they, they wanted the sun, which goes lower and lower and lower and lower in the sky and it gets colder and colder and nothing grows and then the sun starts to rise again. And they must have felt that um, there was something they could do to make it happen. They were afraid it might not happen. Right. Uh, so the amount of effort they put into these things is fantastic. So we, we start off with Stonehenge in Wiltshire, in the south of England. When it was built, it was all wooded there. It's now Salisbury Plain. Can you just describe Stonehenge for us? Just, I mean, a, it, it, obviously most people know it. A lot of people would have seen it, but just tell us what it looks like. It's a circle of stones. It is actually built on the site of a wooden one. People know that from the fence posts they found in the ground mm-hmm. so originally there was a wooden palisade then it became a stone one the stone one is is you know two and a half uh, thousand bc and these are enormous stones made from very hard rock which apparently comes from the welsh coast yeah and, how, and how, how did they 150 miles 150 miles away okay. so how did they get them up there onto salisbury plain how did they do it and um most theories reckon that they were kind of hewn uh, with um, very crude axes from the rock uh, on the coast of Pembrokeshire. 
and then put onto logs and and rolled all that way with presumably with teams of horses pulling them and teams of people moving the log from the back to the front again so that they kept on going it's very difficult to imagine how they managed to do it would have taken a long time but the each of these stones you know weighs 25 tons or something yeah I have another theory, which is not my theory. Actually. It's not only that as well, sorry to interrupt, but uh, just moving the stones to where Stonehenge is located, but also getting some of the stones on top of the others. Oh, that's right. So, you, you, you I mean, those How did of, they do that? Those of you who know what it looks like will know that it's... It's, it's, got, that's, it's like two stones with a, with a kind of top across the two. I think originally, I'm not sure. I mean, we're, listeners, obviously, we're not experts. We don't present ourselves as experts here. We're just two people talking about this subject but i think that what it originally looked like was so standing stones in a circle with stones going around the top as well that's right um so how did they get those huge extremely heavy stones up there Uh, well there's that question i mean there there is a a theory i read about when i was actually in pembrokeshire in wales looking at the rock where these things apparently came from Mm -hmm. And there is a huge amount of seaweed on that part of the coast. Seaweed? Seaweed is these brown plants that grow in the sea. Slimy, right? Slimy, slippery. There's lots of different kinds of seaweed, but one of them has got big, wide um, sort of leaves, which are very, very leathery and slippery and quite strong. Ah. And uh, somebody had postulated that you could actually use the seaweed to slide these things. And I thought, that's an interesting thought. There was an awful lot of seaweed. I mean, you could have barrow loads of it, you know, uh, uh, horses pulling carts full of wet seaweed. Right. Putting it down in front of the, the you know, the rock and sliding it because it's being towed by more horses and things. Mm-hmm. I thought, that's an interesting thought. You know, um, it's more likely than this logs theory for my for my liking yeah. anyway so they took an awful lot of effort doing it it's fascinating to speculate on it though isn't it yes that, that, you know because we don't know it kind of lets your mind your imagination run wild a little bit or sort of to an extent you can kind of speculate based on what we do know and based on sort of uh, what would be reasonable and start to imagine what must have happened. It's it's it is mysterious. Yes, and it fascinating. is mysterious. When I was a, a a child at school, we we were told stories with picture books about the ancient Britons. Now, the ancient Britons is a, is a way of describing the Celts, the Celtish tribes that occupied these islands, you know, before the Romans arrived, and. Um, the, uh, the the books would show them show the ancient Britons wearing animal skins and kind of you know hunting things with spears. Well, we now know from from later discoveries and carbon dating that there were really sophisticated societies going on much much longer ago than that. I seem to remember in in the Netherlands they found some um, sort of fossilized spears. Uh, and yeah you know like javelins and um this was a camp where they were horsemen you know it's flat flat country in in the netherlands and they were horsemen and they apparently hunted wild horses because there's a lot of horse remains and they'd obviously been cooked and eaten and uh, they carbon dated these spears, and they were, I think, twenty five thousand years old. Whoa, twenty five thousand. So, years so old. we're talking about 
the sophisticated societies that go a long way back, yeah. and we don't know anything about them. Yeah, it's incredible, uh, isn't it? And um, so we do know a bit about the Anglo-Saxons who who moved in from mainland Europe uh, after the Roman Empire had collapsed, and and that was the era where the the Vikings moved into our islands from Scandinavia, and the Anglo-Saxons moved in from Germany and and Denmark, Denmark and, and, yeah. and so on, yeah. uh, mainland Europe. Well. Um, they they were very sophisticated. Beautiful jewellery has survived, mm-hmm. and a lot of poetry and and other things. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine you know you can go back thousands of years, and you would have had something similar. Right. Um. So that the, so Stonehenge, yes, but there's lots more. Um. I was very struck in Scotland. We went on holiday to the Outer Hebrides. Where's that? It's on the northwest side of Scotland, mm-hmm. and it's a chain of islands out in the Atlantic. Okay. Uh, there are Inner Hebrides, uh, much closer to the mainland. The Isle of Skye is one of those. Um, the Outer Hebrides, if I remember rightly, there is um, North Uist, South Uist, Benbecula, and Harris. These are the main islands, and they kind of tend to be long and thin. People can look at the map and they'll see them out there uh, to the northwest of Scotland. It's very remote, but also very beautiful. Um, and on Harris, there is another uh, stone monument dating from around the same period. It's called the Callanish Stones. I think it's fabulous. What, um, does, it, what does it look like? They are very tall stones mm. on, a, on a hill. Um, and they are in the shape of a big cross. So there's two avenues of stones which cross in the middle, and at the middle there is a circle. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of cross with a circle, quite big. And um, the Callanish stones have, have also got other stone circles within sight if you're there. There's another Callanish, a uh, smaller one, within sight further away. So if you're hilltop. standing in the if middle... there, you can see several. On, the, on different di- different parts of the island. In the distance, because it's on yeah. a hilltop, is yes, it? Yes, that's right. So if you stand on that hilltop in the middle of the circle of stones, mm. you can see others in the distance. And well. again, it must have been a fantastic effort to mm. get these huge, um, very, very hard and heavy stones in position and, and lift it up. Some of them are very tall, mm. uh, very spectacular. It's a great um, setting. A, a lot of films have used the Kalanish stones as a, as a background because it's such a, a fantastic scene. But also in Scotland, on the Scottish islands, there, there are lots of other monuments. There's lots of burial mounds, lots and lots of burial mounds. What are burial mounds? It's just, it, it looks like a little hill, yeah. but it's actually made by people. And it's where you bury somebody important. Okay. And um, some of these burial mounds are very sophisticated. There's one in the island of Orkney, which is the other side of Scotland, which um, went I went to, and... and um, there's a kind of stone tunnel made of slabs. So there's a doorway into it. Mm-hmm. And you have to crawl in. Yeah. And you can crawl down this tunnel of stone. Yeah. And at the end, there's a chamber where obviously the famous person's body was going to be, along with various artifacts. What kind of famous person are we talking about? And, and again... Oh, the- a, a local king, um, you know, an earl. Yeah. So, the, and again, this is similar period to Stonehenge, is it? Um... Not necessarily. It could be more recent. The, okay. the burial mounds, some of them go right back, um, and some of them are slightly more recent. I can't remember this one, but but the interesting thing, I think it was quite an old one. The interesting thing about this burial mound 
was that on Midsummer's Day, the longest day of the year, if you were in that chamber and looked out of the tunnel, you could just see the sun rising over the highest peak of the mountain range. Wow. So there's a, there's a little there's a mountain sticking up on yeah. the horizon. Yeah. And the sun appears on that peak yeah. at the, the, that moment, and it shines straight down the tunnel and illuminates the little chamber. So it's just for one day. Sh- that one particular moment sends a shaft yep. of light right into the it middle of the chamber. shoots its light down and it lights the chamber. Wow. So how did they do that? It's Indiana Jones stuff, that it's is. It's fantastic. Yeah. So there's all sorts of interesting things about prehistory. We call it prehistory because we don't know much about it. And I like the British Isles in that way. It's It's got very ancient history, and it's the kind of history I like. Um, mm-hmm. It's about the sea. It's about tough environments, hard environments, the north, uh, and, uh, and you know, different tribes, the Celts, of course, who are, f- are famously amazing. Um, and then later on, the Vikings and the others who, who came to our islands and celebrated their religions and their gods. And a sort of a deep understanding and respect and worship of the sun and the moon and um, constellations in the sky. And these people would have had would have had a, a great level of sort of knowledge, but uh, uh, their own sort of knowledge about where the sun is at certain times of the year and the cycles and all these sorts of things and so for stonehenge for example isn't it true that there are certain stones which on uh midsummer's day uh or midsummer's night when the sun comes up it the sun comes up at a specific point and the the whole of stonehenge has been designed around this particular moment so that the sun shines you probably know more definitely about it. they know that's absolutely right they they call it um a, a giant clock and that uh it, the the layout is definitely aligned with the sun the, the sun the moon and the stars and um of course in these ancient times, people must have been very closely connected with the natural world. They must have known, uh, you know, a great deal about nature. Mm-hmm. Um, they were sharing the territory with animals and birds and insects and plants. Plants in particular, they're particularly good at knowing, you know, what you could eat, what did you good, what didn't, yeah. and how to tr- treat them. Um but also, you can imagine, there's no light pollution, none whatsoever. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay. Imagine the you know, looking up at night and seeing the fantastic starscape. Yeah. Imagine um, watching the moon and trying to work out what was going on there. And they could quite obviously realize when it was going to, you know, turn up. And yeah. when it was going to be full and when it was not. And, you know, it doesn't take very long for people to work that one out and um they must have had all sorts of really fascinating theories about these things so i I like all that i like i like Mm. the ancient british cultures that are mysterious for me um i can't help thinking of lord of the rings the the book uh rather than the film because the film they don't have enough time to deal with certain little details but the book contains certain references or certainly a kind of an atmosphere of that kind of mystery and wonder 
of uh, the British landscape. Certainly the earlier passages of uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, like when Frodo and, and the other hobbits end up being, what is it, they, they get, um, you know the section I'm talking about with the Barrow Whites. Oh, yes, uh, the, the, and the trolls. Yeah. The, the, and, the, the, and, the, yeah, the, they're, the, sharing, they're sharing the land with um, other creatures. And, and of course, Tolkien, who, by the way, lived just down the road from here. I mean, he got married in the town where he's standing in, yeah. sitting in. Yeah, this is, yeah. So, Tolkien, this was his patch. And the Shire, it was very much Middle England, Central England, you know, where mm-hmm. we are now, the Central yeah. England. Um, yes, he was an expert in... in particularly Anglo-Saxon cultures and Viking cultures, which is, you know, there's a fair amount of uh, record of that. But yes, the uh, the Lord of the Rings touches on all these things. If you go to Ireland, I remember being very struck when I went on a holiday to Ireland and met some people who were absolutely convinced that uh, they were sharing the island with uh, unseen people. Like kind of... Well, they call them leprechauns, but that that's... You know, some people think leprechauns are sort of little elves, but in, in Ireland that's not necessarily the case. And uh, a leprechaun can be um, just an, it's someone who isn't isn't human. It's it's other. It's a spirit. Uh, and there are all sorts of stories. How you know you you you're at a crossroads and you meet somebody with a feather in their hat and they tell you which way to go and then you turn around and they've disappeared and then mm-hmm. you've had a, an encounter. And yeah. it's the same in, in, in Iceland. Iceland, they feel very strongly that they share the island with what they call the hidden people. Um, and they're convinced of it. So, I- Iceland is not that far from the coast of northern Scotland. Not that far. The, the interesting thing is all these cultures are, are in our folklore in all sorts of obscure ways, sometimes in folk songs, sometimes simply in stories that have been handed down, and they're, they're still there. So it's the mystery, the connection mm. to natural cycles, the connection to the land and nature. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Okay, great. Good okay. choice. Yeah, really good choice. Yeah, we could definitely dig deeper and find <laughs> stories and interesting um, things to say about uh, standing stones. And there are standing stones all over the country. Yep. I mean, for, I'm thinking of the Rollwright stones. Oh, they're close by here. The yes. Rollwrights are in Col- in the Cotswolds, and they the Rollwright stones have turned up in episodes of Doctor Who and stuff. Yeah, very interesting. Well, they're curiously shaped stones, aren't they? Yeah, they they look, look like kind of frozen um, monsters. I made a little homemade horror film at the Rollwright Stones Ooh. with some friends using my mobile phone. Anyway, so there you okay, go. So, so that's kind of um, first thing I like about these these islands. Um, I thought I, I for my second choice, mm-hmm. I could come more up to date and uh, go for our canals. Okay, so number two, British thing number two is canals. Canals. What are canals? Man-made waterways. Man-made waterways. waterways. Man-made waterways. Okay. Man-made waterways. Man-made waterways. Okay. Well, people probably know all about canals. I mean, the the fact is that um, Britain was apparently the first country to have a fully developed canal network Mm -hmm. across the country. And it was incredibly important 
for what we call the Industrial Revolution. Okay, so we previously were talking about sort of prehistoric um, civilizations two two and a half thousand years before Christ. Now we're we're bring we've we've been brought into the industrial era. So what kind of time period of time are we talking we are about? Talking uh, seventeen fifty to eighteen fifty. Okay, that kind of period. Okay, and um, it was when Britain. Uh, was uh, discovering steam power um, with some famous inventors and um, producing uh, new industrial processes, both for textiles and for steel and and metal and pottery. And uh, they needed lots of coal to fire up these, these things. And we do have a lot of coal. Uh, in in Britain, coal mines and a lot of coal mines, particularly in the north. Well, not so many anymore. Not anymore, um, and um, because they were closed down. And of course, trying to move, you know, iron ore and coal, not to mention the finished goods. Imagine if you're making um, pottery, you know, making plates. Yeah, and then you want to get them to a port to get them exported. The only way you could get them there was to put them on a pack horse. Or put them in a cart. And the roads were just muddy and rutted, so uh, not so good. Mm, And the plates are going to get broken. And then, um, you know, it it was thought that maybe we can develop river transport and connect up some of the rivers with man-made trenches. And the first one, I think, mid-18th century, was called the Bridgewater Canal. And it was made by a very rich landowner, Duke of Bridgewater, and um, in the north of England. And he um, he owned coal mines. Okay. And he decided that he needed canals to move the coal to the industrial centre, Manchester in particular, but also Birmingham. And of course, he was immensely rich, so he could afford to have all these hundreds of workers to dig these canals, which are amazing pieces of work. Fantastic pieces of work, complete with locks. If you have to raise the water level, they have these sort of uh, fa- famous things called locks where the water goes in one end, the the boat rises up, and then the gates open at the other end and the boat goes out like steps. Yeah, because if you're, if you're building a canal network and you have to deal with hills mm. where the land rises and falls and you don't want all the water to just sort of slosh down to one end if you want to keep the water level yeah. level uh then how do you deal with that when the land around it is moving up and down what do you do you, well they're called locks and locks. and just near where we're sitting at the moment there is one of the longest uh, series of locks in the country it's called hatton flight the hatton flight has got i think 23 locks in a row it's a bit like sort of steps in um, water isn't it sort yeah. of thing and that's on the Grand Union Canal, which connected uh, London and Liverpool. Uh, so the canals were a huge success. The uh, The Duke of Bridgewater got his money back within two years, apparently, having invested a huge amount wow. in building his canal. Good investment. Everybody saw this as the way to go. The, the famous uh, pottery manufacturer in Stoke-on-Trent, Josiah Wedgwood, he invested in, in canals to transport his precious chinaware and also to get coal in to fire up his ovens and so the the canal network grew very rapidly 
all over the place and there were people investing madly in in canals because uh, that was where the money was and it cut the cost of transport and uh, completely these canal barges boats that, on the canals yeah they're called barges or sometimes narrow boats because the canals were very narrow and the boats had to be thin and long they were long and thin these were towed by horses so each canal had a, a tow path alongside it uh, where the horse would walk. And it, it was very efficient. Uh, you know, one horse apparently uh, could, could carry about 30 tonnes in a, of coal or whatever in a boat. Because of the lack, of, horse. Because of, the lack of friction. No because, friction. Because the, water, the, the boat is on the water and so there's very little friction there. So the, the, the one horse can actually pull a very heavy load. Yeah, so they were brilliant. The biggest engineer in this part of the country, in the Midlands, was called James Brindley. James Brindley was a great engineer who did a lot of the building of the canals. His name is remembered in Birmingham in street names and in shopping centres and one thing or another. Mm. Brindley also did did a lot of work connecting them up so that it became a network. And there was a golden age of canals. They say it was 1770 to 1830, where uh, the canals kind of were really important. And and Birmingham, uh, which is the second biggest city in Britain, wasn't much of a city then, but it was at an intersection of two canals, and um, it grew incredibly fast. Uh, They used to call it the Silver Cross, the mm-hmm. Silver Cross. Because, Why the Silver Cross? Well, because of two canals crossing yeah. at Birmingham. Silver meaning like the reflection yeah, of the water. That's right. Thread of water. Yeah. So the canals made a huge impact on Britain. They f- fueled the Industrial Revolution. It made Britain incredibly rich. Also helped the colonialization uh, and all that. Because um, it suddenly allowed um, this industry of, of spices and textiles and other materials that could be brought in from um, other countries, brought into ports like Liverpool or and, Southampton. And transported to the big city. Transported all around the city to all around the country to these industrial places where they would be then transformed into different goods that could be then sold. So that's the history of the canals and, and what killed them off? What, what do you think killed off the canals? The invention of the car, the motor car? No. The railway? The railway. Yeah. No, no, it was the railway. And, and um, of course, uh, once they'd started building railways, and again, Britain was an innovator in, in building railways, uh, it was much quicker, mm-hmm. much faster to yeah. trans- transport things by rail than by canal. And the canal companies started to go bust, and sometimes the rail companies bought them out to eliminate the competition. And the railways took over. Uh, and so the canals fell into a steady decline. And um, they, they have only been revived in relatively recent times. How have they been revived then recently? In about the 1960s, people started realizing that these, these canals were a resource and that they should be cleaned up, if you like. Yeah. Uh, and they're now used for leisure, a, a lot. Uh, we've been on a canal holiday. It was absolutely wonderful. You get into a, a long, narrow boat and chug, chug, chug along these beautiful canals. These the, the narrow boats, I mean, you talked before about how they were pulled by horses, but obviously later on the engines, uh, diesel, were, engines yeah. diesel engines were put into them. 
and That's so on. Right. Yeah, and they also these days these these uh, narrow boats that people either uh, spend time on during holidays or actually they live in them. Um, they have you know kitchens in them. They've got uh, living quarters, toilets, and stuff. Yes, in fact, when the canals started going to decline. The people who worked in the canals found their wages being cut and their wages being cut. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them had to bring their families on board the boat. They had to live on the boat. Yeah. Because uh, they couldn't afford anywhere else. Yeah. And, and this produced um, a kind of a culture, the boat people. The boat people lived on the canal boats. Yeah. And they had their own artwork and their own language, their own habits. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And so there's a little bit of tradition of the of the of the canal boat being a little little cozy home with a little bedroom in it and everything else. Mm. So the, there was the leisure thing, uh, but also um, in the big cities, the the canals suddenly became fashionable. Once they'd been kind of cleaned up, and there were nice canal side walks, and you could go jogging beside the canals, and you could go cycling by the canals, and then suddenly they were building apartments in the old factories. And the old mills, which stood by the canals, converting them into classy apartments to live in and canal side living, um, you know, in places like Manchester and Birmingham became very fashionable. So the canals have revived now and they're completely different. They're smart. They're a leisure facility and there are canal side restaurants, cafes, pubs and all that kind of thing. And it takes you away from the traffic. You know, you, you, you step away from the traffic, down maybe a flight of steps. There you are on the canal side. And it's very pleasant, especially in the summer, yeah. to sit beside the canal and, and have a pint. Yes. And I'm thinking of famous sort of canal side locations. For example, Camden Lock. I don't know if you've been there recently. but these, Not recently. This is in London, right? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's um, a really cool place to go. There are loads of interesting places to get food cafes uh shops and restaurants it's just a really cool spot to hang out in london now canal uh camden lock and you can walk all the way from camden all the way down the the canal uh past regent's park past london zoo all the way through to many other parts of london there you go and you don't have to cross a road you don't have to get involved in the traffic and the buses and um it's actually a different way of looking at places when you see places from the canal side um you see things in the way you haven't seen them before from a different angle no it's a great success the, the the you know the revival of the canals so instead of carrying coal uh, that's what they do. One of my friends actually lives on a canal boat. Oh, does he? Uh, yeah, he used to live in, in uh, West London. He had a flat there, but uh, he'd sold his flat and bought a canal boat, obviously you know, much cheaper than his apartment was. But now he lives on a canal boat. And uh, I've spoken to him on the podcast several times. Um, so listeners, uh, Moz is his nickname, oh. M-O-Z. And he lives on the canal boat. And he get, it's very interesting because he's kind of constantly moving around the network. He spends a lot of time in London, but also he can take his boat up to different parts that of is the canal network. isn't it? And, and he, uh, you know, he's allowed to stay in a certain spot for about two weeks before mm. he has to move on. So he's constantly on the move. And he wakes up in the morning and his, he you know, comes out of the boat. And there are, he gets to see these beautiful scenes often of, of nature. He's right there on the water. So there are ducks and mm. geese and swans and things. And... Uh, it's, it must be lovely, actually. He's got a, a stove in his in his boat that keeps him warm. 
uh, it was kind of sort of very attractive idea. It's actually. a different lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't move your house around like that, but also you can't have a snooker table in a in a, in a yeah. canal boat. Yeah. Okay. Nice one. So the canal network. Interesting. Very interesting stuff. By the way, listeners, we're recording this on New Year's Eve, and it's just Dad and me sitting here in the in the living room. Mum's gone to bed because she was tired. <laughs> <laughs> this is how we celebrate New Year's Eve these days. Uh, my wife is uh, not with us at the moment, but uh, uh, my daughter is upstairs asleep. My brother's elsewhere. So it's just dad and me. And uh, well, we were like, what should we do? Let's let's record this podcast we've been talking about. So it's... it's we're gonna, gonna coming up to the year 2020 quite soon. It's about... Oh, how many minutes away? It's now Not eleven. Many. It's eleven fifty-two. So in a, in about seven or eight minutes, it uh, it'll be twenty twenty. The end of the decade into twenty twenty. I've set my. So al- we'll have to let everybody join in with a countdown to midnight, which is midnight UK time. Yeah, I mean they've already got there in in mainland Europe, but um, you know we'll they can join in with us, right? Let's anyway, get, let's crack on. Let's crack on. There's that phrase again, folks. I talked about that with James. Anyway, so what's your third thing? And by the way, I've set my phone to uh, an alarm on my phone. Okay, it's so gonna it'll go, go beep, beep. It'll go beep, beep uh, two minutes before midnight. So then we can kind of just sort of take a pause to um, sort of bring in the new year and then carry on. All right, so anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's the um, um, what's the, the other one's thing? slightly connected. It, it's, it's northern landscapes. Northern? It's landscapes, basically. Yeah. Uh, the the British Isles has a whole different range of landscapes. Now, no other countries do, particularly big countries like France, for example. But the, they seem to be particularly um, interesting in, in Britain, and I particularly like northern landscapes. I would say that probably most of the tourists or visitors to the UK probably start in London. That Probably London attracts most of the tourists. And as a result of that, I wonder how many, uh, probably not that many of get up to areas in the north yeah i would think a minority and i um, mean i know some get as far as stratford upon avon here Strat- say hello there's shakespeare's birthplace mm-hmm. and some will get up to edinburgh in scotland but edinburgh's a city and and the i'm interested in more rural landscapes more remote landscapes and we're very maritime nation you know we have an awful lot of coastline and um the coastlines are different too Geologically, you mentioned geology right at the beginning. Geologically, we're on a kind of a, a tilted plate. So, uh, if you imagine British Isles on a on a on a plate, mm-hmm. and then you tilt it slightly, so that the uh, eastern end dips down towards the sea, and the western end tilts up. Okay, and that's basically what we've got. We've got cliffs all the way along the western side, and then, you know, we have got some cliffs elsewhere, but in East, in East, East Anglia, uh, in the southeast, it kind of runs into uh, some lowlands, marshlands, and sandy bits. Yeah, I'm thinking of places like Norfolk, where yes, that's it's right. very, very flat, mm. and um, that flat land runs right into the sea, and, you know, there's problems like the fact the sea is encroaching on farmland and stuff. But they, we don't have cliffs on the east side, uh, but we've many well, we cliffs. We do a on, bit. Up in, yeah. When you go up to Yorkshire, you yeah. certainly do, and Scotland. Um, so it's a simplistic way of looking at it, but it is a bit like that. Okay. Uh, and northern landscapes are the ones I like because they're rugged. Uh, they can be wild in, in, in bad weather. They can be spectacular, stormy. 
and I like wildlife, and I like the wildlife you get around our northern coasts, and the cry of the gulls, and the you know uh, all, all the other thing. Gulls are these white seagulls. Yeah, birds. People call them seagulls, but they're actually called gulls. Yeah. Anyway, so I like northern landscapes, and they're I think they're a bit romantic. The Anglo-Saxon poetry that survived over the ages has a lot celebrating. Uh, northern landscapes and the trials and tribulations of the people who had to live in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a there's a famous Anglo-Saxon poem called "The Wanderer," and the wanderer is described as being on his boat and being lashed by the sea and ice in his beard and the cry of the eagles and all that kind of stuff. Mm. It's a great, it's a great poem. Um, so, um, and also I like the artwork of uh, a, a man called Norman Aykroyd. Norman Aykroyd does old-fashioned um, style uh, etchings. Is that an Aykroyd up there? Yes, it is an Aykroyd up there on the wall. That's a picture of? It's the, the Skelligs, is it? It's, it's uh, Michael Skellig? It's... Skellig, um, Skellig, Michael. It's one of the Skelligs. Yes, I think it is one of the Skellig Which Islands. Listeners, you know, Star Wars fans yeah. will know that Acto, where Luke Skywalker goes to in uh, Episode Seven, Episode Eight, sorry, that is um, one of the Skellig Islands. But there's a Norman Aykroyd etching of one of the Skelligs on the wall here. It's a yeah. very atmospheric uh, shot with a rough sea and moody, cloudy sky and stuff. Right, your alarm has just gone twitch, twitch, isn't no, that, that right? Was, that was my wife texting me saying, ready to scream. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> like she's, She thinks we're going to scream. Listeners, she's doing it the right way. She's out uh, with some friends celebrating. Um, uh, I'm being boring and staying in. I'm not a fan of New Year's Eve. I like to be in. I like to stay in and... Uh, I'd, I'd rather not be out on, on this particular night. I like to be in where it's cosy and warm on New Year's Eve and to celebrate in a low-key kind of way like this. But my wife's out celebrating and partying with some wow, friends. Wow, she's a party animal. She might call me at midnight. Uh, we'll see. Oh, there's the alarm. Oh, there's the alarm. So that's I've the alarm. I've got to turn the TV on. Two minutes till um, 2020, ladies and gents. So and dad's, now dad's, I'm tuning in to... Uh, the BBC on the TV, mm-hmm. and they're in London, uh, where we're going to have a great firework display, of course. I can see them standing in front of Westminster Abbey. I can see the um, the River Thames behind and the London Eye, the big uh, wheel. Huge uh, crowds of people down there. Lots of crowds, yeah, yeah, lots of crowds of people. It- so we'll, we'll wait for the countdown, Luke. We will. We'll do the countdown. It's going to happen very soon. Yeah. But... Um, so I was just talking about Northern, uh, Norman, sorry, Norman Aykroyd. Artist. Artist uh, who uses very traditional old-fashioned techniques of etching using acid in a great big bath. And he, he, the acid, you know, burns out uh, a plate and then he prints off the plate. And it gets this particular quality. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's normally in black and white. And... and uh, it, it, I feel as though the northern landscapes are in black and white anyway. Yeah, you know, yeah. you, there isn't any colour there. Because it's quite dark. I'm sure that's not true. But, no. Um, yeah, I, I just like that stuff. I, I like the coast. I like the cliffs. Um, and uh, I like the fairly remote areas. I come from the north. I, come, I was born in Yorkshire. Um, but I didn't really stay there long enough to, to appreciate it. I, was, I left when I was nine years old. Yeah. But I do remember, um, you know, going off 
uh, to the Yorkshire coast and, and to the moors, which are the uplands, and to the dales, which are the beautiful little valleys. Yorkshire's a big county. I think it's the biggest oh, county. The countdown is happening. Oh, 13. Here, Here we, we go. go. Here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Here we go, folks. There we go. Happy New Year. Is that actually Big Ben? That is Big Ben. They fixed it. Especially. You can hear the fireworks. Wow. And Big Ben, or the, the bell. The, be- the Big Ben is actually the bell. What's going to happen now is a massive and outrageously expensive firework display. Like in many cities around the world. It's, it is quite impressive, I have to say, the firework display that they usually have in London on New Year's Eve. I think that's... What? What are we going to do here, Dad? You want to watch the display, don't you? I think Dad wants to watch the display. No, I don't. You're okay? Yeah. Well, anyway, Dad, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Luke. Um, we've, but we year, have Luke. got drinks. I've got a beer. You've got a glass of wine. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Mm-hmm. Well, here we are into 2020. 2020, a new decade. Yes, I'll be pleased to see the back of 2019. <laughs> Not a lot good happened in 2019. Yeah, well... <laughs> Anyway, happy new go. year, Dad. I, yeah, you know, happy let, new year. I should give you a hug because that's that's what oh, people oh, do on oh, New Year's Eve. Yeah. There you go, Dad. It's nice to spend New Year's Eve with you. Yes, it's, it's certainly nice to have you all here for Christmas and the New Year. Yeah. So, um, do you, do you need to talk to your wife or not? Well, she hasn't called me yet. She probably will. Um, She'll probably FaceTime you some. Yeah. Oh, she's written nice things to me. Oh, that's really sweet. Oh, I'm lucky. Oh. She's she's writing lovely messages to me. She's working in France. Yeah, she's gone. She went back a little bit early because she had lots of work to do. Mm. Oh, she's written some really sweet things. I'm gonna I'm gonna speak to her soon. So we should. Okay, probably... well we'll wind up quickly. Yeah. So um, there you are. Um, I just like the landscapes. Yeah. And it's a pity that visitors don't get the chance to go to Wales, go to, you know Cornwall, Scotland. Obviously, Northern Ireland is beautiful, and um, uh, and. North of England, Yorkshire, particularly. I mean, you lovely, me- lovely landscapes, fantastic. You mentioned Yorkshire. I remember, uh, but uh, you mentioned Yorkshire. Maybe we can talk about that in a second, um, as the fireworks continue in London there on the TV. Uh, but I remember talking of atmospheric uh, northern landscapes. I remember um, as a family, uh, one year we went on holiday to the north. Uh, the north east right we went up and we did a really really good walk along the northeastern coastline to towards lindisfarne castle yeah where is lindisfarne it's castle northumberland it's north, northern northumberland northumberland and it's um it's a little island lindisfarne and and uh you go across a kind of causeway to it yeah it's where the monks used to used to be a big car a castle on an island mm. off the coast of mm. northumberland northumberland is just sort of south of the scottish border that's right 
and uh, incredibly atmospheric place. And that's right, you, to get to the castle, you have to walk along a, a causeway, which mm. is sort of like a pathway. But when the tide is up, so when the sea is high, the pathway disappears and the tide comes racing in. Uh, and uh, it covers the path so that the castle on the island is is cut off and is just sort of on its own in the sea. Amazing place, and there were you know lots of bird life there and everything. And it, I just remember having a really fantastic time walking um, along the coast and then walking along the causeway to the to the castle and then walking back and and seeing the tide racing in, like seeing the water rushing yes, in. Yes, that's right. Um, to, and and like, it's a, it's a it's a different landscape different experience from you know being in london or or you know getting in your car and going to work and everything else mm. it's so refreshing to go to somewhere completely different completely wild and and um with big sky uh, you know i like i like that yeah where you're walking and there's lots of sky again it makes you, me it, it, listeners may hear some more fireworks it's actually coming from outside the window here because we're next to Warwick Castle and Warwick Castle is having a firework display. Yeah, it's a fan. Another, talking of castles, Warwick Castle is one of the best castles in the country. It's but, one of the biggest uh, medieval castles in Europe. So these northern landscapes and northern locations, I mentioned before Lord of the Rings, but it is that kind of thing. Like Colt Tolkien was very influenced by these sorts of locations and also Game of Thrones, certainly the, the books, I would say, that the the TV series, a lot of it was filmed in Northern Ireland. But um, They're quite popular. I mean, you know, Braveheart, the film, and, and other things that use these these kind of remote uh, locations, they're, they're, they're quite good. Yeah, absolutely. Right then. Okay, well, Dan, thank <laughs> you for talking to us about uh, some of your favourite Some of British- the things I like about Britain. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and what I must do is take a photo of that um, that Ackroyd etching. Is it an etching? Is that yes? Yeah, it's not a painting. It's no, an it's etching. not. An, it's an etching. Uh, I must take a photograph of that etching of one of the Skellig Islands, in which is an island off Ireland, by the way. So not technically a British thing. Uh, but, yes, I uh, think it belongs to Ireland. Yes, definitely. Um, just to give you an idea of of what Dad was talking about when he mentioned, and we went there. We, we, yes, you, we me, did. and James, we went on a little boat. I mean, the sea was amazing. Poof, poof, great waves and everything else. Yeah. We went past the island, which has all the seabirds, the gannets, yeah. flying around. And then we had to climb up this rickety little staircase just, up to the top. Just like in Star Wars. Just in Star Wars. So we did that. We climbed up there and we saw a lot of the, I mean, there weren't any, uh, what do they call porgs? No porgs uh, up there. We, didn't we see any porgs? No, we didn't oh, see. They were shame. puffins, loads of puffins. They were, they were puffins. We didn't see Luke puffins Skywalker. birds, by the way. But... Um, yeah, so been there, done that. We didn't get a T-shirt, but uh, there it is. Dad, thank you so much for talking to it's me. It's been my pleasure. Happy New Year again. Happy New Year to you. Thank you also for your contributions to Luke's English Podcast over the last, what, decade or <laughs> Probably. more? It's been, um, it's been 10 years. It's been over 10 years now. And you were in episode two. I was? Yes, you were. We oh. talked about Easter. Really? Yeah, you don't remember that, but I that don't. was way back in 2009. Uh, we talked about Easter. Okay, uh, well, your podcast goes from strength to strength. I know that it's very popular with lots of people, and um, I hope they appreciate the fact that you can entertain them while they learn English as it is spoken here. Uh, I think it's quite quite a useful uh, way of learning English, really. Uh, wow. And uh, obviously, if people want to go to a higher level, they've got your premium service. But a lot of people will just go for your free service and listen and enjoy. Yes, absolutely. That's the idea. Okay, listeners, Happy New Year to all of you. And uh, I'll speak to you again on the podcast soon. Thank you again, Dad. 
Thank you. Okay. All right then. Bye 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 bye. So that was my dad with his three quintessentially British things. As ever, I invite you to write your comments in the comment section if you have any. And don't be a ninja hiding in the shadows like the vast majority of my listeners. All that remains to be done is for me to remind you to download the Luke's English podcast app from the App Store to get the entire episode archive, plus loads of bonus extras. And also to sign up to LEP Premium, where I teach you grammar, vocabulary and pronunciation using target language which has occurred naturally in normal episodes of the podcast to get started with that go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium right then thank you for listening and i'll speak to you again in the next one which is going to be three quintessentially british things with mum but for now it's just time to say goodbye bye 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 Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.